Thanks for downloading This Is US Sustainability from the US Sustainability Alliance, which represents nearly 2.6 million farmers, foresters and fishermen in the United States. My name is Russell Goldsmith and on this episode we're focusing on farming heritage. In the United States, around 98% of farms are family owned and operated and many of these farmers want to continue their family tradition by handing down their business in better shape to the next generation. Today we'll be talking to two such farmers and hearing about how they're embracing change to ensure that they have a sustainable business for many more years, hopefully generations, to come. Chip Council is a grains farmer from Maryland and his family has been farming in the same area for over 300 years. And Jason Smith is a cattle rancher from Louisiana whose family has owned and operated the same land for over a century. Jason has recently returned to the farm after a career in the Marine Corps and implemented changes that mean going back to what he describes as the natural cycle. So before we speak to Jason, uh, joining me online from Talbot County, Maryland, I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Chip Council. Chip's a 10th generation farmer whose family has been farming in the region since around 1690. Uh, Chip is former president of Maisel, uh, the International Maize Alliance, and has also served on the Maryland Grain Producers Board as a US Grains Council representative for over a decade. Uh, welcome to the show, Chip. Uh, for those of our listeners in Europe not so familiar with their US geography, uh, whereabouts in the US is Talbot County? So Talbot County lies exactly 60 miles due east of Washington, D.C. So we're located on the east coast of the United States, and our farm is located between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. Am I right in saying that, I mean, we talked about you're a 10th generation farmer. Did your ancestors first come to the area from England? Is that right? They did. So in 1690, two brothers uh, came from England. Well, one did not survive the trip. However, Dennis Council did. So uh, we've been farming in this same general area for for just over 300 years. Yes. That's incredible. And tell us a little bit then about Council Farms. You know, what, what's the setup, the size of your farm? And yeah, what, what are you growing there? So we grow about a thousand acres of corn, a thousand acres of soybeans, 600 acres of wheat. Some of those are double crop. We grow soybeans behind our wheat crop when we harvest. Uh, we also have a farm market which includes a creamery and a ag tourism operation where we bring about 3,000 school children a, a year out to the farm and tell them a little bit about what we do, why we do it, and, and those type things. And you've got your family working with you there as well, is that right? We do. So, so we are in a transitioning period where we're shifting some of those responsibilities over to the next generation. Uh, my daughter, Melissa, my daughter-in-law, Casey, my son, Jason, and son-in-law, Jason. So, yeah, so it's uh, it's an interesting time. It's a, it's kind of neat to see them uh, step step forward and, and take over what we've spent a lot, uh, lot of time building. As you just mentioned, we've established you've been farming in the area for over sort of 330 years. It's, it's quite incredible. Are, are there any traditional um, ways of farming that, that still apply? Sure. So, you know, um, farming is still back to the basics. It's uh, every farmer all over the world uh, starts the season out the same way uh, with, with nothing more than hope for a great crop. The technology changes. It continually changes, obviously. But but those basics are still there. And, uh, uh, you know, you've got to plant a seed when the weather conditions are, are right. Soil conditions are right. Uh, we still worry about the same things insect, disease, weeds, uh, you know, and, and sustainability is a word that's relatively new. But as I look back over my family's history, 
obviously they had to be sustainable both financially and environmentally or we wouldn't still be here. Any sort of remnants from the past still on the farm at all? So uh, we, we have some visitors from time to time. And I actually, in one of our implement sheds, I have a have an over overhead shelf that has a lot of the implements that my grandfather actually farmed with. And most of those are horse-drawn implements. And it's kind of interesting to see the changes in the same machinery where we have a horse-drawn cultivator that's probably two feet wide sitting next to some of our implements that are 40 feet wide that we use today. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say on that, can you sort of like bring us up to date then? What maybe go into a bit more detail about what that, you know some of those changes have been? So uh, again, you know, farming has changed. It continually changes, but we're currently in a little bit of a drought situation in my area, but we're still going to have a fantastic crop. Uh, not going to be a record breaker, But when you look at the changes in technology in equipment and uh, seeds and pesticides, whether they be herbicides or fungicides or insecticides, you know, it's amazing to me how we're able to do what we're able to do. And, you know, I've traveled the world a little bit. And to me, it's a shame that farmers in other areas of the world don't have access to some of this technology. You know, seed is seed no matter where you are. And and again, when I look at my grandfather's implements, what he had to fight disease and insects, uh, weeds with, and then what we're able to do today is just, it, it's mind boggling and it changes daily. I mean, it's, it's you know, technology's moving forward. Are you able to go into a bit more detail about how you're reducing your environmental footprint? Uh, obviously, a lot of our crops are no-till. Water quality is a big concern. You know, I would argue that we farm in one of the most environmentally sensitive areas of the world. We're surrounded by rivers, streams, the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, we are continually striving to do better. And with the technology available, again, those bioengineered seeds, GMOs and whatnot, we're able to cut back considerably on our insecticide use. So we've got more beneficial insects. It's kind of interesting. You know, we started with the biotech seeds as soon as they came out in 1997, I believe. And at first we were trying to reduce our insecticide use. But what we didn't realize after two or three years, we noticed that we we were getting higher yields, but also better soil health because we weren't killing all the beneficial insects with those pesticides. So we were getting more earthworms, more beneficial insects. And that in turn led to an increased efficiency, both in water uptake and in fertilizer uptake. So we got all these second benefits that we we didn't even think of when we originally started. So with those beneficial insects, we saw an increase in certain types of wildlife on a farm and and just overall healthier soil and and a better biodiversity. So it's been kind of neat to watch. And am I right? You're... Also building ponds, is that right, for some of the wildlife around there and and helping them in that environment? Right. We have about a thousand acres of timber along with the the field crops that we grow, and we manage those woodlands for wildlife. But then some of the the conservation practices also benefit wildlife. So we have a lot of grass waterways where, where we channel the water to keep from erosion a lot of those waterways will go into a sediment pond to keep sediment from entering the streams and, and the rivers. But those also serve as a resting ground for, for waterfowl, ducks, geese, those type things. So again, all these things work together. It's a system. It's not a one-tiered approach. It's, it's an overall system that we implement. 
Yeah. We mentioned those previous generations. What, what do you think your, your grandfather or, or, the, or those forefathers beforehand, what would they make of, of the way you're farming now? I think they would be extremely proud of what we've done and what we continue to do. We're building upon the legacy that they started. I think what would amaze them most is the productivity of the agriculture today in the U.S., the ability to turn out a great crop, to get it done in a timely fashion. And I say, God put me on this on this earth to be a farmer. And I feel I have a responsibility, not only to the land, but but to the world as well. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to, to grow food and fuel for the world. Just going back one generation, I understand your father was pretty pioneering as, as well in terms of being the first in the area to grow no-till corn. Do, do, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? So I was, I was a, a young lad at the time, but he saw the benefits or potential benefits to no-till corn specifically for the environment and, and runoff and, and uh, actually moisture retention with that mulch on the soil. So he experimented with no-till corn in the, in the 1970s. Uh, I remember farmers coming from all over the area by the busload to to look at this corn that was it, it was just a whole new way of doing things. And is there any more information you can share in terms of some of the conservation work that you're doing now? So we're very fortunate that we get some uh, uh, cost share assistance to implement some of these practices from the United States Department of Agriculture through various programs that they have. But we implement about thirty some different conservation practices on our farms. Probably some of the most important is each one of our farms has a conservation plan where a USDA conservation planner comes out, looks at the farms. We determine where we need, what are ways, where we need different things. Another interesting thing we do is nutrient management plan on every acre. So we soil test every acre every year, have a professional consultant. Uh, we work with them to determine the limits of fertilizer that we put on those to get the most efficiencies. Uh, some of our corn, our higher yielding crops, we will apply nitrogen four times through the season instead of all at once where it's at risk to leaving the fields and, and those type things. Uh, another thing we do is integrated pest management. Again, we use a lot of the, the latest technology when it comes to seeds and whatnot. So we scout our fields uh, probably every other day, uh, sometimes three times a week probably to to look for various problems that, that we need to address. Again, with the grass waterways that we talked about, the sediment ponds, uh, we use a lot of precision agriculture where we found that with some of that technology in our equipment, we're finding about a 7% seed savings as well as pesticide application due to overlaps in irregular shape fields. I mean, we're recording this chip at a time where the economic environment is pretty tough, I'd say, both sides of, of the Atlantic at the moment. I mean, is, is that impacting you in any way? We're in an unprecedented time. You know, in the, in, we've been very fortunate, I guess, for lack of a better word, I would call it just-in-time delivery. So if we needed a part or a implement tire or a product, a pesticide or whatever, we would go get it. A lot of times, for financial reasons, we might buy a year ahead or, or various things. But we're in a situation now where some products we're, we're unable to get. I just purchased a new to us corn head and we're going over some work. And I had to go to three different suppliers, some as far as in Nebraska, which is in the center of the U.S., to get parts to get this this piece of equipment ready to go. It's unprecedented. So it, it's been a it's been a challenge that we're still trying to, to to deal with and figure out how to 
you know, how to navigate that system because I'm not sure that that's going to change in the short term. Hopefully, long term, we'll get back to a more normal situation. I guess these external factors that is, you're not going to deviate from your uh, your drive for sustainability in any way. I take it. No, no. You know, I've made the statement. Other than my family, there's nothing I treasure more than this land, and it's important to me to provide an opportunity for future generations. I have a responsibility, and that comes at any cost. I will protect my land. And you mentioned family again there. So let's just sort of, I guess, finishing off, off uh, on, on our theme in terms of, you mentioned your, your, your kids, will there be a 12th generation farmer in grandchildren at all coming? So I have a granddaughter that just turned 12 and a grandson that turned uh, 10. Uh, they they help us on the farm with some of the pumpkins and, and at the farm stand. You started them young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So my grandson uh, loves baseball. So he said when he's done playing major professional baseball, he's going to come back and farm after that. But one one quick story that I thought was interesting. So they were about three or four. And I asked them, I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my granddaughter said, I want to be a strawberry farmer. I like strawberries. I said, well, that's great, Avery. And I turned to my grandson and I said, I said, uh, Davis, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, pop up, I'm already a farmer. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of kind of interesting at a, at a young age. That's tremendous. You haven't shown him Field of Dreams yet, have you? <laughs> You're not going to lose half your farm to, to, a, to a baseball pitch. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's lovely. Listen, uh, Chip Council, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. So now we're heading south from Maryland to Louisiana for a different perspective from a farmer who is perhaps newer to sustainability, but no less passionate. Uh, Jason Smith is joining me online from Mount Hermon. He's the owner of Smith Angus, a fifth generation cattle farm. And now, as I said in my intro to this episode, Jason's farm has been in his family for over 100 years. And uh, today we'll be talking to him about how he's honoring his farming heritage while making changes that will benefit his five children, the next generation. Uh, Welcome to the show, Jason. Uh, Can we start by you telling us a little bit about where you're located in Louisiana exactly? Sure. So if you can envision the shape of Louisiana, it's shaped like a boot, and we are in the top of the big toe. So southeastern Louisiana, uh, probably two hours north of New Orleans and just a few miles underneath the southwestern Mississippi border. Great. Give us a little background to the farm. So, you know, in terms of the size, how much land you've got, and also obviously you've got livestock there, so it'd be great to get a bit of understanding of what animals you have and and also um, what your business model is. We've got 240 acres, just over 240 acres. Uh, We've got cows, about 140 cows. We've got roughly 100 sheep in various ages. I've got some bees. We've got seven hives of bees. And outside of that, we've got as you said, a bunch of kids and dogs and uh, <laughs> other things, but we sell meat directly to customers. We, when I moved back in 2016, we changed the business model from selling the offspring of our livestock wholesale at the livestock auctions to a value added type of product where we could set our own prices. And so we went through the process of getting our USDA certification and getting our own label. And we have all of our meat processed at a USDA inspection facility, which allows us to sell individual packages of meat to directly to customers and restaurants. And we sold our first meat in 2019, right at the tail end of 2019. Uh, And then, of course, 2020 was the year of the pandemic and people were a lot more interested in where their food came from and avoiding grocery stores. And so business has just grown year on year since then. 
Now, I mentioned in my intro, um, the farm's been in the family for over 100 years, so that makes you a, a centennial farm. Talk us through the history of the farm. So we started uh, my great-great-grandfather. Uh, actually, I'd heard a story that his father, so my great-great-great-grandfather, came from Mississippi across the border into this part of Louisiana before it was actually part of the United States. And the Spanish who owned this part of Louisiana sent a platoon of people up from New Orleans and chased out all the people that were trying to lay claim to the land. And so they were chased out. And then, of course, his son then moved back in once the British got this part of Louisiana. But uh, my great-great-grandfather was the one that settled the land claim with the United States in 1896. And so then it was almost exclusively forest land at that time. There was a lot of logging operations that went on uh, as construction in New Orleans was picking up. Once the land was cleared, this area became a bunch of subsistence farms, transitioned to dairy. Dairy industry was very big when my grandfather was running the farm and when my dad was a small boy. When my dad went off to college and they sold out of the dairy industry, got some beef cows, and we've been raising beef cows since, you know, 1960, I guess. And so when did you get, like, first get involved in the farm? So I got involved as I, I was in the Marine Corps, and I, when I would was getting close to making a decision on whether or not we would retire or take another job posting. I recognized that if the farm was going to survive another generation, that I was probably going to be the one to do it because I was just in a position to take care of it. My wife is from the same area. And so we decided we were going to move back and give it a go, but we needed to make some changes to what we were doing. And that led us to doing a lot of research about uh, sustainable farming and trying to limit our inputs, limit our costs, being able to set our own prices and making a viable business. Well, that leads nicely, obviously, onto the, the topic of, of and the theme of the podcast that, that we have. It would be great to understand what those changes were, actually, and how you introduced them and how you've gone on to develop uh, things since then. The biggest change was because I knew I was going to be here full time. I could adopt practices that would take time instead of inputs. For example, I could keep animals in a small space for a short amount of time and use their manure as an asset to fertilize the soil and then move them to another piece of land and do the same thing, thereby giving that pasture that they had just grazed time to rest. So my last job posting was actually in England as an exchange officer with the Royal Marines. And so I spent the last three years of my Marine Corps career researching how to go about doing this. So there were really three tenants that I needed to figure out how to implement on this farm. I needed to get electrified fencing. I needed to get mobile water and I needed to get mobile shades. I needed to have the ability to move the animals around every day. I needed to keep them in the same spot every day and then move them to a new spot. The fencing would help keep them in the same spot. And of course, they need water and shade in order to thrive. And there needed to be enough available forage for them not to have to eat feed or anything else. How long did that process take exactly then? Well, <laughs> the process is still going. Uh, oh, right. Okay. I, I'm almost complete. Now, I, to be fair, most of the changes were done in the first two years, but it has taken a certain amount of time to remove a lot of the, all the barbed wire fencing, all of the fixed fencing. Uh, I changed the design of some of the pastures in order to help the rotation. Uh, I put in a lot of water line, but there's one set of pastures that I haven't been able to get to because one of the negative consequences of the pandemic is the price of PVC pipe increased by about a hundred percent. So I was supposed to have done it two years ago and still haven't gotten to it, but it's like anything else. You make the changes when you can and 
you figure out the temporary solutions. I just don't want the temporary solutions to be permanent fixes. Is it something that you'll see an immediate impact on how you're contributing from a sustainability and an environment point of view, or is it something that's going to take a long time to, you know, to see those results? That's a really good question because it's, I have noticed changes. In fact, right now is a perfect example of some of the changes I've seen. So we moved the calving season to the spring. In the wintertime, because our growing season is longer, we would typically overseed some of the pastures with ryegrass and let the cool season grasses grow. Uh, but in order to do that, you have to disturb the soil a little bit. And then there's a lag time where the cool season grasses are growing and the warm season grasses are dying off. And so that essentially interrupts the natural cycle. I didn't do that this year. I moved the cabin to the spring. And so every pasture is really a lot has been allowed to go through its natural cycle. But the the great thing to watch is because the soil was completely undisturbed, there is still grass that's coming up. Like if you walked out into our pastures now, here we are in the last part of the year in December, and they're still green in the fields. There's mushrooms growing in the fields. There's clover growing in the fields. And none of that would have happened in, in preceding years because of the soil has been disturbed. And I'm trying to, you know, artificially input this grass into the pastures and, and help it to grow. But all of that takes care of itself if you can manage the natural cycle in ways that complement what it was intended to do in the first place. How has that differed from what you were doing before then? And, and why was that so important? Well, we were calving in the fall which just means that the cows would have calves between October and December every year. Now we're in Louisiana. We, we have milder winters than a lot of places. And so that was done really as a way to have calves to be sold the following year and they would be heavier. You know, if a calf is born in October of say 2022, well, I can sell that calf. It'll be heavier and bigger in August of 2023 than if that same calf is born in March of 2023. It's just a way for the calves to be sold at the wholesale auctions. You know, they're getting calves from all over the country. And because a lot of places in the country won't calve when the ground is frozen or there's snow on the ground, they'll buy calves from us, you know, in, in the southern states because we have milder winters and we can plant ryegrass and we can carry cows through the winter. It's just a way for them to fill, you know, to diversify their revenue or spread that revenue out over the entire year. But then we are absorbing the cost. You know, each individual farm then has to go through the expense of planting ryegrass and trying to carry cows through the winter who are lactating and carrying calves. And their energy requirements are obviously higher. So the expense is transferred to each individual farm. And if we could get away from that model, if we could get away from selling our calves wholesale, then there was really no reason to continue to do that practice, if that makes sense. What was the reaction um, when you took over from your dad and you said, like, right, we're going to make all these changes to to the way that, you know, the, the processes and, and everything on the farm? It, it's been difficult. I, I, I don't want to minimize it. But in my dad's defense, the farm would not exist if it were not for his superhuman efforts. You know, he did an enormous amount of work as one person to keep the farm going when he wasn't living here full time. And so he implemented certain practices that would save him time and would allow the animals to thrive in his absence. So there were a lot of fixed water points. You know, the, the cows had 
access to any pastures really that they wanted to. Uh, he focused a lot on the exterior fencing because he didn't want the cows to get out while he was gone. Uh, he focused on baling hay in large round bales that he could put out and feed cows for two or three days at a time. When I moved back and started to implement the changes, I think that he thought I was in some ways telling him that what he was doing was wrong, when in reality, it was just that the circumstances had changed and we could now do things in a different way that would complement a lot of the things that we want the farm to become. And I mentioned the next generation earlier. Um, you, you said you got five kids. How old are they? And, and like, are they involved then in, in the farm? Yes. In fact, I've got five, five kids, four boys and, and one girl. The oldest is 21. So he's, he still lives here. He has a job about an hour away. So he commutes to work every day. But the two older boys were actually involved yesterday morning when it was about 40 degrees and drizzling rain. Uh, there was much complaining and wailing and gnashing of teeth, but they were out there and, uh, you know, building character and, and building character through adversity. Um, so, yeah, but you mentioned just before, you know, it's, it's coming towards the end of the year that we're recording this. What's the expectations for 2023? Well, that's a loaded question because uh, my kids will <laughs> tell you that one of the things I always tell them is the secret to happiness is low expectations. Uh, so I try not to get too ahead of myself. But the last two years, have we've seen an increase in business. The thing I'm most looking forward to in 2023 is to see the effects of moving the calving season to the spring and not disturbing the soil over the winter. I really think it's going to pay off in terms of soil health and in terms of available forage in the summer. Uh, and we're going to get an earlier start on some of the spring grazing. So that seems like a, a small detail. People probably don't get very excited about watching grass grow or <laughs> watch, watching manure dissolve into a pasture. But th that's what I'm most looking forward to over 2023. Tremendous. Uh, Jason Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to uh, Jason and, of course, to Chip Council for uh, sharing his family heritage story on This Is US Sustainability. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the US Sustainability Alliance, please visit our website, which is thesustainabilityalliance.us, uh, where you'll find plenty more information on the topics we've discussed in this episode. Uh, don't forget to follow the podcast on your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, but for now, from me, Russell goldsmith thanks for listening uh, we'll see you in 2023 for a new series of the podcast recorded in louisiana and you don't want to miss it